You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Thanks for downloading episode 15 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Previously on the podcast, we talked about the presidential election of 1856 and how James Buchanan was elected to be the 15th president of the United States. We said that in the slave states, Buchanan won the contest against the know-nothing candidate Millard Fillmore, but then Buchanan lost the contest in the free states to John C. Fremont, the Republican Party's first-ever presidential candidate. In the North, Buchanan carried only the five states of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Illinois, Indiana, and also California, while Fremont carried 11 others. The New Orleans Daily Crescent newspaper said the Northern voting results were a stunning shock. The Crescent went on to say that Fremont had won the North based on a platform, quote, which would inflict immeasurable degradation upon the Southern people, end quote. Even though they'd won the contest, the Democratic Party and the South had been well and truly scared by the election results. Immediately after the election, Republicans started to look ahead to 1860 with anticipation because they realized that if they could add Pennsylvania and either Illinois or Indiana to the block of states already captured, they'd win the next presidential election. And so, as we mentioned last time, the two-year-old Republican Party made a profound statement in its first bid for the White House. After the election of 1856, both the Democrats and Republicans recognized that in the realm of presidential politics, the South needed the North, but the North could ignore the South. As historian Stephen Puglio explains, quote, A solid North could win the presidency outright. The South did not have enough electoral votes or population to achieve the same result with one of its candidates. What the South feared most was that any solid North in the future would undoubtedly sweep into power the despised anti-slavery Republicans. End quote. But worries about the future prospects of his party weren't the only troubles that James Buchanan would have to face upon taking office. After claiming victory on Election Day that November, Buchanan as was customary at that time, had to wait four long months before actually taking office. His inauguration ceremonies took place in Washington, D.C. on March 4, 1857. Two days later, on March 6, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roger Taney, and his eight colleagues filed into a packed courtroom in the Capitol building. The courtroom that day was crammed with journalists and spectators because the entire country was waiting with bated breath to discover what the High Court's ruling would be in the Dred Scott case. By March 1857, most of America was already acquainted with the particulars of the case 
and its implications with regard to the debate over slavery. And so, on that Friday morning, on the ground floor of the Capitol building, the noise in the crowded courtroom died down as the justices took their places. Tawny, a frail, ill, cadaverous-looking man who would turn 80 in less than two weeks, held in his shaking hands a 55-page manuscript that spelled out his majority opinion. Looking down at the sheets of paper before him, the Chief Justice began to read the court's decision. Roger Brooke Taney was born in 1777 in Calvert County, Maryland, into a wealthy slaveholding family. He attended Dickinson College, read law in Annapolis, and was called to the bar in 1799. In 1831, President Andrew Jackson appointed Taney to be his attorney general. Jackson recognized that Taney was not only a clever legal mind, but also an effective political organizer, and so in late 1833, during his battle against the Bank of the United States, Jackson tapped Taney to be Secretary of the Treasury. And then in March 1836, Jackson appointed Taney the fifth Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. The main theme of Taney's tenure as Chief Justice was the defense of slavery. He appeared to have no great attachment to slavery itself, since he'd freed his own slaves years earlier, but Taney was a fervent defender of Southern culture, which, of course, was intimately tied to the institution of slavery. In private, Taney expressed growing anger at the strengthening of anti-slavery sentiment in the North, and he grumbled about Northern aggression. The Southern majority of the Supreme Court shared the Chief Justice's concerns. They had first heard arguments on the Dred Scott case in 1856, but had held it over for re-argument in the next session, probably to avoid rendering a decision before the presidential election. But then, in February 1857, the court unexpectedly announced that it would issue a ruling that covered all aspects of the controversial case. It's uncertain why the court took this surprising and momentous step, but it most likely had, had to do with the pressure that Southern politicians were placing on the court to once and for all settle the question of Congress's right to ban slavery in the territories. Southern politicians sensed that with the Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court would issue a ruling favorable to them, so they wanted a decision in the case sooner rather than later. It also appears that President-elect Buchanan made it known to the court that he would be pleased if it made a decision that settled the slavery debate once and for all, and then his incoming administration would have one less major headache to worry about. In fact, Buchanan, quite incredibly, seemed to admit to an insider's knowledge of the ruling when he made reference to the much-anticipated upcoming Supreme Court decision in his inaugural address on March 4th. In his speech that day, Speaking of the court's upcoming ruling, Buchanan declared, To their decision, in common with all good citizens, I shall cheerfully submit. But f before we get too far ahead in the story, we should probably tell the tale of how the Dred Scott case came to be heard before the Supreme Court. So let's go back to the year 1834. That's when John Emerson, an assistant surgeon in the U.S. Army, was transferred from Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, Missouri, to Fort Armstrong in Illinois. Emerson took his slave, Dred Scott, with him when he was transferred to Illinois. 
Two years later, Emerson was transferred to Fort Snelling, a frontier army post in what was then still the Wisconsin Territory, and once again he took Scott with him. In 1840, Emerson was transferred to Florida, and in 1842 he left the army and returned to St. Louis. The next year, Emerson died, and according to the terms of his will, Dred Scott, along with Scott's wife and children, passed into the hands of Emerson's wife, Eliza Sanford Emerson. It was at that point that Dred Scott filed suit against Eliza Emerson on April 6, 1846, for wrongful imprisonment, claiming that he and his wife and their children were free because their residence in a state and a territory that forbade slavery had made them so. And indeed, when John Emerson had taken Scott to Illinois and the Wisconsin Territory, he had ignored Illinois' free state statutes and transit laws and had paid no attention to the fact that in the territory of Wisconsin, according to the terms of the Missouri Compromise, slavery was banned. Scott's case against Mrs. Emerson was not at all unusual, and so when the St. Louis Circuit Court heard the case in 1850, it ordered Dred Scott and his family freed. Eliza Emerson then appealed to the Missouri Supreme Court, and in March 1852, the Missouri High Court reversed the lower court's ruling on the grounds that Scott was then a resident of Missouri, and Missouri was not necessarily bound to recognize the anti-slavery statutes of other states or territories. In the meantime, Eliza Emerson remarried and moved to New York, but she transferred ownership of the Scots to her brother, John Sanford. Dred Scott then filed a new suit against Sanford in the Federal Circuit Court, arguing that his rights as a citizen had been violated since once in free territory he was a free man, a citizen entitled to all the rights and protections of citizenship specified in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. But the Constitution was rather unclear on what exactly constituted citizenship, and so in due course the federal court ruled against Scott in a jury trial in May 1854. Dred Scott and his attorney then appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, which be, re, began hearing Scott v. Sanford in February 1856. When Chief Justice Taney, writing for a 7-2 majority, gave the court's ruling over a year later, on March 6, 1857, in front of that packed courtroom in the Capitol building, many of the spectators and journalists struggled to understand his hoarse, barely audible voice during the two-hour-long reading. But eventually, it became clear that the Supreme Court had just dropped a bombshell on the country. First, the Chief Justice said it was the Court's opinion that no black person, slave or free, could be classified as a citizen of the United States. Tawney said, quote, The question is simply this. Can a Negro whose ancestors were imported into this country and sold as slaves, become a member of the political community formed and brought into existence by the Constitution of the United States, and as such become entitled to all the rights, privileges, and immunities guaranteed by that instrument to the citizen. It is absolutely certain that the African race were not included under the name of citizens of a state, and that they are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution, and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. On the contrary, 
They were at that time considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race and, emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority and had no rights or privileges but such as those who held the power and the government might choose to grant them. End quote. Since Tawney had reduced the question in the Dred Scott case to a matter of race, he then continued, expounding upon his argument that blacks were an inferior race and subject to enslavement for their own benefit. Quote, They had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relationships, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro might justfully and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his own benefit. He was bought and sold, and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic, wherever profit could be made of it. This opinion was at that time fixed and universal in the civilized portion of the white race. It was regarded as an axiom in morals as well as in politics, which no one thought of disputing, or supposed to be open to dispute, and men in every grade and position in society daily and habitually acted upon it, without doubting for a moment the correctness of this opinion. End quote. While Tani's words to our ears today are frightening and sickening, we have to remember that his ideas about Dred Scott belonging to an inferior race were not that much different than what most other white Americans back then including most Northerners, thought about race relations. We have to remember that what most Northerners and Southerners disagreed about was not whether blacks were inferior, but whether a person's race was sufficient reason to enslave them. So Tani's argument regarding race only caused part of the ensuing ruckus. It was what Tani said next that was a political bombshell because the Chief Justice could have stopped with the court's decision that because he was a black person, Dred Scott had no legal standing before the federal courts, and therefore the federal courts had no reason to listen to his suit. Although the ruling should have ended with that race-based decision, Taney didn't stop there. Because remember, President Buchanan and the Democrats wanted the slavery issue settled once and for all. And besides that, this was a ruling that Taney himself had undoubtedly been itching to write for quite some time to put the aggravating Northerners in their place. And so the Chief Justice continued with the court's ruling. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Tawny next turned to consider Scott's own plea that residents in a free territory could terminate his status as a slave. Tawny shot down that argument in no uncertain terms. He said it was the court's decision that no territorial government in any federally administered territory had the authority to alter the status of a white citizen's property, much less to take that property out of a citizen's hands without the due process of law or as a punishment for some crime. And by this, Tawny meant any property of any white citizen in any territory, which in this particular case had been John Emerson's slaves, Dred and Harriet Scott. What Tawny was telling everyone was that the Supreme Court of the United States was dismantling the Missouri Compromise as as unconstitutional because it deprived slave owners of their property above the 3630 line. And so, in just two sentences, Tawny demolished not only the venerable 3630 line, but also popular sovereignty, the Compromise of 1850, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act as well. As Alan Gelzo points out in his book, Fateful Lightning, A New History of the Civil War and Reconstruction, quote, The two sections of Tawney's opinion fit together as integral parts. The first reduced Dred Scott to a non-citizen, fit only to become some real citizen's property. And the second denied the federal government any authority to restrain in any way the spread of slavery in any place where the federal government, as opposed to the individual state governments, had jurisdiction. In fact, only the states themselves were left by Taney with any constitutional authority to deal with slavery within their own borders, and even that might be the next safeguard to be questioned by federal courts. End quote. You can probably guess that the reaction to Taney's ruling was split along sectional lines. The South celebrated, rejoicing that the constitutional guarantees of property were secured once and for all. They reveled in the fact that no governmental body had the right to restrict the movement of slaves, since slaves had just been declared inviolable property by the highest court in the land. The North roundly condemned the ruling, blasting it as a politically motivated act by a pro-Southern Supreme Court. That belief would have only been reinforced if people would have known that President-elect Buchanan, anxious to have the court resolve the toxic question of slavery in the territories, had brought highly improper influence to bear upon upon Justice Robert Greer. For political window dressing, Buchanan wanted at least one of the two northern justices to agree with Taney's opinion, and since Greer was a fellow Pennsylvanian, the president-elect successfully pressured him to stifle his dissent. But in the end, Buchanan's secretive backroom dealing was for naught, since instead of removing the issue of slavery from politics, the court's extremely controversial ruling itself became a hot-button political issue. While the South viewed the court's decision as a victory, it actually ended up being a disaster for them. The provocative ruling was too much for Northerners to stomach, and many of them now threw their support behind the Republicans, since they saw the new party as the last line of defense against a concerted Southern effort to open the entire nation to slavery. 
While Dred Scott strengthened the Republicans' position, it undermined the Democrats' already shaky sectional alliance. Stephen Douglas and other Northern Democrats were disheartened by the ruling, seeing it as an unnecessary and unjustified attack on popular sovereignty, while President Buchanan and Southern Democrats welcomed the court's decision as the last word on the issue of slavery's expansion into the territories. And so, after Dred Scott, the Democrats found it that much harder to maintain their already shaky North-South alliance. Roger Taney's Dred Scott ruling proved to be another significant milestone on America's road toward civil war. By making slavery a Fifth Amendment issue, the court's decision basically put the matter beyond compromise. For if the property rights of slave owners had to be upheld wherever they chose to take their slaves, then logically, slavery either had to be universally accepted across the entire nation or universally abolished. So whatever else it did, Roger Taney's ruling in the Scott case ensured that when it came to slavery, after 1857, there was no longer any middle course, no more room for compromise between North and South. There was now just a short fuse burning toward confrontation and conflict. Dred Scott didn't live long enough to see the Civil War that would finally settle America's position on slavery, but he did die a free man. In May 1857, the children of Peter Blow purchased Dred Scott and his family. Peter Blow had been Dred Scott's original owner and had been the one who sold Scott to John Emerson. Blow's children had helped Scott pay his legal fees during his long battle in the courts. After purchasing Scott and his wife and their daughters in 1857, Blow's children freed them. Dred Scott died in September 1858 of tuberculosis. After taking office, President James Buchanan put the final nail in the coffin of Democratic Party unity with the Lecompton fiasco. Buchanan, thankful that he didn't have to give an opinion on the toxic slavery issue himself, announced his intention to use the Dred Scott decision to end the turmoil in Kansas, and so he welcomed the application of the territory's post-slavery legislature for the admission of Kansas to the Union as a slave state. Late in 1857, largely because of the territory's free state majority of residents boycotted the event, pro-slavery forces won control of a convention to draft a constitution for Kansas prior to its admission as a state. Meeting in Lecompton, the convention drafted a constitution recognizing slavery as a necessary institution for Kansas. The convention finished its work in November 1857, and because the delegates were afraid the free state majority would reject the pro-slavery document, they refused to give voters the option of choosing a constitution without slavery, and didn't even give voters the choice to reject the constitution entirely. Voters could only choose between a state constitution with the right to bring in more slaves, or one with only the slaves already in the territory. Even though he was warned by the territorial governor of Kansas that the Lecompton Constitution was a fraud and represented the view of a minority of Kansas residents, in February 1858, President Buchanan sent the Constitution to Congress and urged them to approve the document and admit Kansas as the nation's 16th slave state, since this would once again restore the balance between free states and slave states keeping in mind that California was admitted as the 16th free state back in 1850. 
Buchanan and Southern Democrats pushed hard for Congress to approve the Lecompton Constitution, and the angry debate that ensued on Capitol Hill proved ruinous for the Democratic Party. Once again, the divisive issue of slavery had a significant impact on America's political landscape as Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas broke ranks with the Buchanan administration and opposed the Lecompton Constitution. Douglas argued that the fraudulent Constitution made a mockery of his long-cherished view of popular sovereignty, that is, that residents of a territory should decide fairly whether slavery should be permitted. It didn't take long for the bitter debate in Congress to grow violent as a brawl broke out on the House floor. According to Stephen Puglio, quote, South Carolina's Lawrence Kite and Pennsylvania Congressman Galusha Grow exchanged blows during one heated argument over Lecompton on February 6, 1858. Sir, I will let you know you are a black Republican puppy, Kite said to Grow. The Pennsylvania lawmaker responded, Never mind, no Negro driver shall crack his whip over me. Kite went after Grow, but unlike Charles Sumner in May 1856, Grow was prepared and knocked Kite down with a single blow to the jaw. In an instant, the Congressional Globe reported, the House was in the greatest possible confusion as more than 50 members joined the melee. End quote. A month after the brawl on the floor of the House of Representatives, South Carolina Senator James Hammond used the debate over Lecompton to deliver an impassioned defense of slavery. Hammond, who owned hundreds of slaves, pointed out that many businesses in the North were dependent on the South's cotton. Hammond declared, quote, No, you dare not make war on cotton. No power on earth dares to make war upon it. Cotton is king. End quote. Hammond stressed the North was putting its own economic future in jeopardy by continuing to wage war on slavery, since slave labor was an absolutely essential component of cotton production. But neither the House brawl nor Hammond's impassioned speech could save the Lecompton Constitution. While the Senate approved the Constitution by a 33-25 to margin, it was rejected in the House by a 120-112 to vote. A frustrated Stephen Douglas had led other Northern Democrats to join the Republicans in opposition to Lecompton, and this defection finally split the Democratic Party beyond repair. The controversy also ignited a bitter personal feud between Douglas and President Buchanan. So here's the takeaway from all that we've talked about in this episode. It's that in the end, the snowballing negative consequences of the Dred Scott decision and the Lecompton fiasco finally split the Democratic Party once and for all along sectional lines. The feuding Democrats could no longer maintain their North-South alliance, and so a unified Republican Party would take advantage of that split and win the presidency in 1860. Before we get to this episode's book recommendation, I just wanted to let you guys know that the next significant event on the podcast timeline is the Lincoln-Douglas debates. But before we get to that event, we're going to devote the next episode to a biographical sketch of Abraham Lincoln, and not of his entire life, but from his birth up to the point where we currently are in the podcast, which is the year 1858. So we'll do that next week. And in two weeks, we'll cover the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Okay, so having said that... That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. 
And our recommendation this time is The Dred Scott Case, Its Significance in American Law and Politics by Don E. Fehrenbacher. This book won the Pulitzer Prize in 1979, and it's been called The Best History of a Landmark Constitutional Case Ever Written. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. If you listen to the podcast through iTunes, please consider taking a moment to give us a five-star rating or maybe even writing a positive review. And then if you also subscribe to the podcast, that would be great since all of those things will help other people find the podcast on iTunes. And we want to thank everyone who has liked us on Facebook recently. We appreciate that. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we're glad to use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. And with that, we'll say thank you to y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.